continue. All right, so I am here today with Anatoly Krachilov with digital with Nickel Digital Asset Management, uh, a crypto asset hedge fund in Europe. And um, Anatoly is the CEO. So uh, thank you for being here today. Would you tell us a little bit about you, your background, and uh, especially about Nickel and what you do there? Sure. Uh, glad to be here. Uh, my name is Anatoly. I'm co-founder and CEO of Nickel Digital Asset Management. We are a London-based hedge fund uh, dedicated to crypto space. Uh, what we are building is really a range of investment solutions for institutional and private investors to access crypto market in a transparent and efficient manner. Uh, the origins of the firm uh, go to 2019 when three founding partners came together from traditional finance and made this massive transition into crypto world. My personal story, I've been in finance for 25 years, uh, came actually from a completely different background. My family has nuclear physicists on one side, mathematicians on the other side, went completely wrong direction in finance. That led me to London uh, 20 years ago now. And uh, I did my master's in Oxford. Uh, worked for few financial institutions, most recently for JP Morgan and Goldman. And my personal journey to crypto started around 2017, when many GS clients were coming back to the firm with the question, we're not exposed to this thing called crypto, but are we missing something? How should we think about that? And that uh, triggered a range of conversations with clients. And I have to admit that I had been rebuffing idea of crypto before that, but having spent weeks and months uh, researching the space and going back to Oxford and uh, going for a dedicated course on blockchain, that became my point of no return. I just came to appreciate the beauty of the underlying math and the number of computational problems which were brought to the world back in the 80s, but really solution was found only via blockchain many years later from 2008 onwards. And uh, so was my fascination about this space that I decided to leave traditional banking system and build something in the space, uh, really kind of a dedicated investment manager. So Nickel came to life in early 19. And then in, fall, in uh, June 2019, we launched our first fund. Now we have five of them, but the first one was launched in June 19. We've been in trading for two years. And what we've done as the first solution was market neutral arbitrage. The logic was that uh, crypto is super volatile space. And for that reason, may not be for everyone uh, to kind of get comfortable with this volatility. And what we thought we can deliver is a range of solutions, starting with very low volatility, market neutral arbitrage, and going all the way to more traditional, if you will, exposure to crypto when you buy and hold cryptocurrency. This is relatively easy to buy and hold, far more difficult is to manage in a market neutral fashion. And we thought if we can do this right and create risk management systems around that, uh, ensure that uh, systems can trade 24 seven, it's a fully, fully systematic algorithmic fund. If we can do that right, we can do everything else in crypto. So we started with the most difficult and today we expanded this range of solution to include five uh, very different uh, fund from the risk return profile. So your clientele are primarily institutional investors. So you could tell us a little bit about who that is, what that looks like, not specifically who your clients are, but, but your ideal clients and what types of minimums, things like that for people that are watching that may be interested. Absolutely. 
So we are building something which is institutional grade by its nature and designed for institutional investors. Uh, we were absolutely realistic, however, that in 2019, it might have been a bit premature for large pension funds or endowments to engage in this space. So what we've decided to do is invest time in helping these large allocators to understand the space, become comfortable with the space, but really the initial capital would have come from family offices. And that's exactly what happened. So today we have 57 clients and the distribution is roughly like that. Five of them are fund of crypto funds. Uh, six are wealth managers allocating on behalf of their clients uh, on clients instructions. Uh, then uh, there are two large asset managers who allocated their prop capital and the rest 45 or so are family offices. Uh, geography is extremely wide, starting with the UK where we allocated. And then we have uh, Switzerland, uh, Austria, Denmark, Germany, Australia, as well as of course, United States and Canada. So this is the global distribution uh, minimums. We are uh, by definition, uh, not going deeply into retail. That was our agreement with the regulator and we are fully FCA regulated but the minimum is $1 million. For some of the newly launched products, such as altcoin fund, a decentralized finance fund, uh, we have initial 250,000. On the understanding, it may, be, may require greater diversification. And from that perspective, we allow lower entry point. Okay, perfect. So your market neutral arbitrage strategy, let's talk <clears throat> a little bit about that, how it works, and, um, and then we'll move into the DeFi. Sure. So uh, market neutral, the way you play this market, you are not expressing a view where market going to go. Although we have personal view on that. Uh, through this strategy, we would not express that. Uh, what we're going to be, what we would trade is really inefficiencies in this market, price dislocations and price swings. Now, uh, there are a number of sub-strategies which are uh, uh, under the hood of this fund. All of them borrowed from a traditional space. We haven't invented the strategy themselves. We just applied the strategies to the far more volatile crypto market. So uh, let me show you one slide, which may be helpful to understand how the thing works. For example, uh, on this slide, you so this is the range of strategies which we uh, play. Uh, on this slide, you can see a number of exchanges uh, where we are present. There are a total of 17 venues. And generally, arbitrage is what is called cross-exchange arbitrage. When you look on price dislocations across individual exchanges, across various time zones, and that's what creates arbitrage opportunities. Uh, because you can easily see uh, as one part of the world, Asia, can be in the middle of a bright day, and then Europe is just about uh, to get up, and United States maybe in deeply uh, or in, in the night uh, part of the world which means if there is a news break in Asia, what's the probability uh, both Hong Kong and San Francisco react, react absolutely simultaneously? Or there is a half a second delay, maybe more for us, given that everything is measured in milliseconds, even a small dislocation in price would immediately trigger uh, algorithm to deploy capital and eliminate price differential. Now, the way you can do that, uh, for example, on this slide, you, you have what is called triangle arbitrage. The logic being, uh, you start with one currency, say you want a US dollar, 
transfer into another Bitcoin. From Bitcoin, you go into Cardano and from Cardano back to US dollar. In theory, you're not supposed to make money in this transaction. However, what happens in crypto world, if you think about a three-legged stool, right? Other things being equal, it's perfectly horizontal. But when legs are moving 10% a day, market just cannot synchronize itself at all times. And that's exactly where the opportunity lies. So in order to trade this uh, triangle, you would trade one leg in one exchange, for example, Coinbase San Francisco, second leg here in London on LMAX, and the third leg somewhere in Singapore on FTX. And for the market, these are three completely independent trades. For us, they are part of the same structure. And everything is executed fully automated. We don't trade manually. There is no mouse clicking. People are too slow, actually, for that sort of operations. Uh, but the whole round trip of you instructing these exchanges, getting confirmation and uh, finalize the transaction roughly takes 100, worst case scenario, 150 milliseconds, which means given that there is a thousand millisecond in one second, you can do seven sequential triangles like that in the space of one second. So it's a very high frequency, low latency trading. It requires powerful algos, which would monitor market and uh, deploy the capital. And then it requires what is called collocation of servers. When you put your uh, instance, your uh, algorithm close to your execution venue so that you minimize this latency, time latency. Very often, uh, these structures are bumping you know, into a kind of natural uh, limit, which is speed of light, right? And then you cannot really squeeze it lower than that in terms of uh, price execution or uh, time uh, latency. But there is a number of optimization mechanism. How can you play these uh, triangular arbitrages? So this is, would be one of seven sub-strategies used in arbitrage fund. And so how do you navigate um, market events that the algorithm may not pick up? Is there any human intervention or involvement at any point? And how, how would they be signaled that they need to step in? Well, in this particular case, uh, Algo would monitor possible combinations of various currency pairs on many exchanges. And if you think, if you trade on 17 exchanges, and uh, each of them contains a range of assets. The number of permutations of possible uh, combinations goes into thousands, actually hundreds of thousands in reality. Only certain subset of them are executable. In a sense, there is a, depth, a deep enough market for us to engage because if a trade is 100K, we wouldn't do it. If it's a million and above, that becomes of interest. And then we would screen this through the, what's the depth of order book? If you were to deploy a million, two million, three million, you are moving market by virtue of your presence. And there is slippage, i.e. kind of market deviates because of that. Question, taking everything this into account and then overlaying a layer of fees, is it still profitable? Uh, all these kind of computational goals in small milliseconds. If the answer is yes, machine would aggressively deploy capital. And it would trade this triangle sequentially until it exhausts this opportunity or exhaust capital, which we have allocated to this particular sub-strategy. So humans uh, are sitting above that and overseeing risk management. How much capital can be deployed in one or other sub-strategy? Ultimately, we are responsible for risk management. Most of the operations, 97% 
do not require human involvement. If there is a very unusual market event, then the system would pause and uh, flag it to humans saying, this situation I've never encountered before, what shall I do? But that's where we may get involved. And I would take it, this is the strategy that the uh, institutions are more, most interested in at, at this point? Certainly, uh, put it so a kind of a low latency trading like that is uh, known very well to uh, hedge funds of this world in say equity or fixed income space. Uh, usually it requires physical location of your server close to London Stock Exchange or NASDAQ. In our case, it's all virtual uh, because all these operations are in the cloud rather than physical. Uh, so it's slightly different, but generally the idea is the same. I think in crypto, you require a slightly different setup, both trading and risk management. And that's where this edge lies. And that's where we are investing so much in the tech, uh, which differentiates us from uh, uh, traditional space hedge funds. That's my so, sense. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, some reports are coming out lately that um, more and more institutions are becoming interested in the space. And when I say institutions, I mean sovereign wealth funds, um, uh, endowments, pension funds, life companies. I know there's a couple of life companies that have dipped their toe into Bitcoin maybe here or there. What are you seeing from the institutional adoption standpoint uh, and where do you think we are in the roadmap and timeline from broad scale adoption with, with institutions like that? Yeah, so uh, I think the mar market may uh, have slightly uh, and just unsubstantiated expectations that uh, institutional investors are just around the corner. The answer, it takes much longer than that for them to take these internal decisions uh, because there is a structural difference how family offices would make decisions or private individuals. Usually you do not have fiduciary responsibilities or a board of directors to report to. For that reason, decisions are much faster and far more efficient. Now, when it comes to larger institutions, there is a multi-layer investment process, right? So first they have to uh, uh, approve involvement in a new asset class called crypto, even before they look on individual managers such as Nickel or anyone else. And from that reason, it's far more lengthier process than allocating to yet another long short equity fund, for example, right? So we are seeing that uh, the conversations which we started back in January only now start to crystallize in inflows from larger institutions. So from that perspective, it generally would take six to nine, possibly 12 months with most of them because of this much heavier structure and a uh, few investment uh, approval layers. But having said that, uh, we are seeing very constructive dialogue with uh, these institutions. And I think COVID really triggered this uh, laser sharp attention to crypto. Because up until uh, 2020, many were dismissing the idea as uh, pure speculation. Up until COVID triggered uh, this massive response by central banks, pretty much uh, what is called kind of let's flood the market with money. And then you have M2 money supply in the US going 28% in a space of one year. And that triggers a quick question. Is it not a debasement of currency and potential impact on inflation? And of course, the answer is yes. And that triggers immediate response. What can we do to protect the capital? 
and crypto suddenly became one of these uh, asset on the radars because of this unique money supply, uh, monetary policy, which means there is a restricted amount, a number of units ever to be in circulation. There is a clarity how they're being issued in circulation. And this is so much different to traditional fiat systems where the amount of fiat in circulation is defined by one entity called central bank, right? And you as the user have zero impact on that and zero visibility, by the way, how many units of US dollars or euros they're gonna be in circulation five years from now. The only thing we can say, much more than today. That's the only assumption, a fair assumption. In crypto, you have this incredible visibility and that's what attracted attention to this space. From that perspective, all institutional investors are really lo looking closely at that. Are they looking more of a long-term view of certain assets mm -hmm. in the space in general or mostly interested in the volatility? I think both. Uh, and uh, there is actually a place for both in, uh, in the portfolios uh, because arbitrage and market and volatility trading is really your capital preservation uh, bucket. Uh, it's a very stable source of returns uh, with uh, very predictable, if you will, right, with very low volatility, whilst taking long exposure to Bitcoin and other crypto assets. Uh, comes with volatility, but it provides far greater math expectation of ultimate returns for a good reason, because this is an exponential asset. Uh, the average, that there is a good statistic that over the last 10 years, uh, Bitcoin has been the best performing asset on planet Earth. Out of these 10 years, in eight, it was the number one in every single year. Now, uh, uh, second best asset is NASDAQ, rightfully so. You would expect tech stocks to perform strongly. And yet the gap between Bitcoin and NASDAQ, I think the factor is 23. So Bitcoin outperformed NASDAQ by 23 times. From that perspective, you should have some exposure to crypto, right? Again, we're very careful of, uh, in a sense, kind of how large should be this exposure. And our idea has always been, do not overexpose yourself. Given how exponential, how growth asset this it is, even allocation of 3% will do the job because it will create this significant upside whilst your risk will remain under control because it's only 3%. Even if crypto were to go down the drain, your max loss is 3%. And I think most of the investors would agree crypto is here to stay. So it's unlikely to be completely written off. But yet this small location can be immensely impactful on your um, portfolio. And that's exactly what many hedge fund managers are looking for, for this asymmetry of returns when your upside is disproportionately large in comparison to your downside. And for example, if you come to this 3% um, idea, say we would allocate five years ago, today we're in 2021, so 2016, July 2016, 3% allocated to the portfolio would have created the risk of 3%. But what happened over these five years, actually this 3% have grown, or I would say $3 out of $100 portfolio, this $3, have increased for over $200. That's incredible impact on your portfolio, right? Actually, these 3% have overgrown portfolio itself. And this is a symmetry which many investors are looking for. From that perspective, answering your question, uh, having directional exposure makes perfect sense. And there is a demand for that. 
as it is for market neutral arbitrage. And I guess from an institutional perspective, Bitcoin is probably the most well-known, the most popular, it is exponential, but I, uh, I think what we're seeing is a potential stabilization and efficiency moving forward that could be uh, extremely exponential from that standpoint. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So what is the view from uh, these investors in that regard? Are they expecting, um, well, let me, let me put it this way. Is price a concern at all with them? It always is concern, right? Uh, people do look at these assets as potential significant downside if they fall in value. Uh, my response to that is, listen, do not lose big picture for the short-term price uh, dislocations. And my best example is Amazon. When Amazon was launched in 1997, it has delivered significant expansion over the next three years prior to dot-com uh, bust, right? And then reached a peak of $106. In the subsequent 10 months, as dot-com bubble unfolded, it has collapsed from 106 down to six. And that was minus 94%. Many investors might have freaked out and sold these assets, never to come back to Amazon. And that was one of the fundamental mistakes to do. Because from those small $6, it recovered all the way and actually has grown to $3,500. Which means even if you were to buy at this peak of $106, as we discussed, you will still be 33%, 33 times up, right? But this small correction, which was back in 2000, it becomes a small blip on a much larger uh, appreciation schedule. From that perspective, when you're dealing with these assets, kind of uh, do not really react to the 20% correction or 40% correction. That's perfectly fine. Any significant upside comes with volatility. As long as you are properly sized, in terms of your investment, and you can sleep well because of this only 3% allocation, you should be perfectly fine navigating this volatility. But human uh, nature is such that people do react badly for uh, market corrections. And our role is really to give them long-term perspective here. Yeah, and it seems that we could be going through a little bit of that correction shakeout phase now before the exponential <laughs> boom in the next year or two with the, the adoption you know, at large, at scale with institutions. Uh, and then that's really what I'm looking at long-term, let's say Bitcoin hits, you know, $500,000. So we have broad scale adoption at that point to get to that number. How is that number viewed at that point? At that point, you mean kind of in the future? Yeah, let's say we're two years down the road, we have a $500,000 Bitcoin <laughs> and we have, you know, a 3% allocation from most of the uh, endowments, pension funds, life companies that can, uh, you know, expose to the asset at this point, you know, is there exponential growth from that standpoint or is there a limit that maybe they're seeing at some point? Hmm. No, perhaps there would be some limit, uh, although uh, proponents of Bitcoin, and by the way, I'm not Bitcoin maximalist by any uh, stretch of imagination. I'm very kind of uh, rational investor. I, I would love to think so. But uh, certainly, in my view, 
if you were to achieve this two to three percent allocation, that's going to be a significant chunk of investment portfolios. Now, how far it can go? It can go in a significant kind of absolute number. I'm not here to perhaps name it. Is it half a million or above? Uh, but uh, well, there might be some plateau at some stage. From that perspective, I think there are other assets in this crypto ecosystem which can provide potentially much higher upside. And the logic is very simple. Bitcoin is very inflexible asset. Uh, there are very, very few changes uh, made to base protocol over the last years. As a matter of fact, the last significant change was uh, made in 2017. So no real upgrades over four years. And possibly for a digital gold asset, which should be conservative in its nature, that's acceptable. However, uh, it really clashes with Silicon Valley ethos of move fast and break things. Bitcoin is not about that. And uh, really the assets which uh, fit into this idea are Ethereum and onwards. So this is kind of another type of assets, which by definition are far more flexible, programmable assets, right? And by virtue of that, they allow a far greater uh, implementation on top of them, right? So Ethereum, for example, would serve as your base settlement layer, but it allows for new assets being built on top of that in ERC-20 format and many others, uh, but that opens completely new avenue. And here comes DeFi. And what DeFi represents is an algorithmic form of financial services. And we have to admit that uh, internet has created significant um, uh, how to kind of, uh, disruption to many industries around us. Look on retail, Amazon completely reshaped retail. Look on entertainment. Again, we have Netflix and others, but two industries remain pretty much untouched largely. One is called healthcare. Second one is called financial services. And the reason for them is Regulation. Regulation pretty very protective to these two industries. Now, financial uh, industry is likely to be disrupted exactly by decentralized finance, because what DeFi brings is uh, a, an, inc an incredible form of capital efficiency and uh, operational efficiency to what is called basic financial services. You have, for example, commercial banks, which would take deposits on one side and on land on the other side. Well, you can replicate the same services on blockchain in a far more efficient manner without a bunch of um, buildings uh, and people in between, right? These two sides. And that's exactly what uh, DeFi brings to the world. And today you have uh, decentralized better borrowing and lending, decentralized insurance, decentralized exchanges, and all of them are very sound as business models. And some of them are already so much cash flow positive that it becomes kind of a money-making machine when it's in its own right. For example, Uniswap, if you look on this decentralized exchange, these guys on daily volumes have reached 70% of Coinbase. Well, Coinbase, uh, also a crypto, uh, crypto machine, but it's a centralized exchanges. Uniswap is decentralized and yet volume-wise starting to get very close to Coinbase. Coinbase has been around for nine years. Uniswap, barely two and a half years. And the number of people involved in Coinbase, 33 times more than on uh, Uniswap. 
and then and yet volumes becomes comparable, which gives you this sense of efficiency coming from decentralized protocols. And we can see these protocols eating aggressively in a traditional financial system. Uh, and to give you kind of a couple of numbers, uh, the amount of total value locked in uh, borrowing and lending protocols today is roughly, the total value is 66 billion, of which roughly 25 billion are in lending and borrowing. Now, you look, what is the addressable market in a traditional space, forget about crypto, and uh, you look on uh, total bank loans, uh, bonds out there outstanding and so on, mortgages, it's $140 trillion. Well, can DeFi completely dismiss and disrupt all financial systems? Maybe not. Can it uh, eat into 10% of this market? Oh, hell yes. Given the efficiency, it's certainly going to eat into 10%. Well, if you just think about 10% of the total addressable market, the growth rate from where we are today and where we should arrive is roughly 700 times. And that's exactly what we are trying to capture, this uh, evolution of this space. And uh, as it grows, structurally grows, we are participating in this space, capturing these early winners. That's interesting. I wonder what De DeFi, as we know it now, is primarily disrupting. Is it the commercial retail bank? Uh, is it lending? Where do you see the biggest use case for DeFi as we know it right now? Yeah, I think it's primarily traditional uh, commercial banking. Uh, what commercial banks do, as we discussed, borrowing and lending plus payments, right? Yeah, peer-to-peer, -peer, credit cards, those things. Exactly. I think most of this can be replicated in a far more efficient manner than going to a local branch, which means certainly commercial banks need to be mindful of uh, evolution of this space. And by the way, another risk to commercial banks comes not only from decentralized finance, but actually from central banks themselves. And uh, CBDCs, central bank digital currency, actually, whilst, uh, by the way, it's inevitable, that's where the world is going to go. And the reason central banks are engaging in development of this uh, new payment mechanism, because it gives them incredible control over monetary system. Today, if you think the way a uh, system works, you have central bank, you have commercial banks, and then you have end user. Usually central banks would push capital to the commercial banks and they would push it down to the end user. Now, what CBDC allows is for central banks to directly talk to the end user, essentially. And uh, the, the great ex uh, experiment was done in China last year when uh, they have selected a group of people, gave them these virtual wallets and dropped a certain amount of capital uh, cash into these wallets. And the message was, you can spend this on uh, anything in the next, by the way, three months. And if you don't spend it, it's going to disappear. So essentially, <laughs> you cannot save it. And by the way, you cannot go into stock exchange and inflate uh, price of Tesla. That's not the purpose of stimulus provided by the government. You can spend on certain services and certain goods. And it clearly creates this incentive system for uh, underlying uh, group of uh, retail clients to spend on certain goods without saving uh, and without wasting on something which government is not really supportive of. 
So that's such an important mechanism of control for the government because they can essentially stimulate down to the economy uh, or the down to sector, down to a specific shop they want you to spend this money on, right? And uh, from that perspective, going through a commercial bank becomes very archaic. What means that commercial banking system, the way we know it, we know it, may become, if not irrelevant, then certainly under threat. And the threat suddenly comes from central bank themselves, right? And then you have the whole DeFi space, which even further undermine the role of centralized institutions such as commercial banks. So yeah, it's interesting, and and that could be one of the reasons why the the United States government doesn't seem to be in such a hurry to um, create the CBDC and get it in circulation. There could be some lobbying on the you know from the banking industry uh, for them to slow that down as much as possible, so that they can figure out how to how to pivot and be part of this. Absolutely, for a good reason. I think that eight thousand commercial banks in the U.S. you have to employ these people somehow, right? Kind of, you cannot just disrupt them on, tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. So what else is on your radar other than, you mentioned healthcare. So how do you see crypto, DeFi, how do you see all that impacting healthcare? Uh, I'm not an expert in that particular segment, but I think what the blockchain generally brings to the world is the is a completely different uh, data storage, right? It becomes a decentralized ledger with perhaps my much greater control over these data rather than these data stored by a local healthcare provider. And if I go to another entity, this data is not available because they don't talk to each other. It should be really uh, kind of in a distributed manner. And I would have this private key essentially allowing access to my data to whomever I allow this to be. And that becomes different uh, structurally uh, data exchange uh, model. And that's where it's going to go. Uh, so blockchain has the role to play. Uh, but I think from the opportunity, uh, financial sector perhaps gives you slightly faster uh, implementation, A, because it moves slightly faster than healthcare, and B, uh, it's just kind of much greater amount of capital locked in the financial system. From that perspective, we are focusing on decentralized finance rather than healthcare on blockchain, although certainly there are great companies and great opportunities there. Yeah, that's that's interesting, and you know maybe Web 2.0 is probably one of the bigger game changers in that conversation. Correct. Yeah, Web 3.0. 3.0. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating. So, um, what uh, else uh, are you looking at? Well, I think generally, since we've touched on Web 3.0, I think we're going to see this transition of uh, internet. The way we know we know it, uh, which is Internet of Information, and that's the revolution which we saw happening uh, in the world over the last twenty five years, when access to the to information become so much easier. Today, I can access information in Australia in the next five seconds from my mobile phone, something unthinkable thirty years ago. Today, it became day to day life. Now. What internet hasn't transitioned into is what is called internet of value. When we can transfer value borderless across the continents in a matter of seconds. Today, we're still stuck in a very old system called, called SWIFT or Fedwire, which takes hours, sometimes days. And if you instructed your bank on Friday night, 
How about Monday morning? We'll execute this transaction. And of course, this is such an archaic way in the modern world. So what I'm, gonna, what I'm uh, envisaging, this internet will kind of capture uh, this new avenue and becomes internet of value. And that's where blockchain comes to power, comes to play. And uh, we are looking at that as an inevitable development. Uh, question, how do you position yourself as an investor to capture this trend? And certainly kind of allocation to crypto makes perfect sense because that's the fundamentals of internet of value and crypto plays role here. How does that differ from DeFi? Uh, well, it's still a part of the same uh, structure. Uh, when we look at crypto in general, we have to differentiate between DeFi services and uh, CeFi, right? Kind of centralized finance. For example, uh, today, most of the trading is still happening on centralized exchanges, such as Coinbase, Binance, FTX, uh, Kraken. So they're not truly DeFi. Well, put it way, they are not DeFi at all. It's already crypto, but not in a truly decentralized manner, right? We believe the world gonna move to decentralized uh, structures because ultimately we want to eliminate this dependency on centralized, centrally run applications because ultimately you are taking counterparty risk and there may not necessarily be full visibility. When it goes decentralized, you as a user, as a user, you gain much greater control. So from that perspective, DeFi is still a small part of crypto, but this is the direction of travel. That's where everything gonna move. And even on our operations, um, today arbitrage is done on centralized venues. That's where we are uh, trading. Having said that, uh, we are deeply researching DeFi and we will start arbing between centralized exchanges and decentralized exchanges. And I would expect three to five years from now, most of our trading to happen on decentralized venues. So again, this migration is uh, part of the evolution of crypto market. Well, on the topic of counterparty risk, do you have any thoughts on Tether and the conversation that has been reinvigorated there in Binance? Yeah. So uh, this Tether, for example, is a classical centralized asset because essentially you have a token issued against centrally held, hopefully, uh, part of U.S. dollar pile. Well, now we know that uh, Tether was never fully funded by U.S. dollars. There was a mixture of uh, cash, uh, short-term liabilities, debt liabilities, and other assets, which you can argue not necessarily as liquid as dollar itself. And from that perspective, should Tether be linked back to dollar one-to-one? -one? The answer is not necessarily. So far, market has chosen to assign full credit to Tether. But at some stage, this trust may collapse and it's going to drop from one to one down to 80 cents, 60 cents, and so on. From our perspective, by the way, this is one of the trades we hold in our books, which means we would short tether in the, on the understanding from what it is today, one to one with US dollar, it cannot go to $2, but it can go to 80 cents, 60 cents, and so on. And then you would make money on this short trade. Now, having said that, I'm, I do not uh, expect this to happen imminently. It's just a strategic position because uh, there, is, there is asymmetry to this trade, right? It cannot go one way, but can go the other way. 
having said that, uh, uh, Tether played very important role in development of crypto ecosystem. Uh, specifically, it created this ability to exit a risky exposure back to the uh, kind of uh, market neutral, market neutral in the sense that you are back to safety or perceived safety of US dollar, right? So you don't have exposure to market, but you don't have to go to US dollar, but you go to a digital equivalent of US dollar being Terra. And that certainly has been used across the board by uh, hedge funds, traders, and people who are deeply involved in, in this market. Now, is it stable? I would expect over time, uh, these stable coins to migrate to more uh, transparent venues, such as Circle, US dollar, US, uh, USD Circle, and other uh, stable coins, which have greater transparency and greater uh, kind of accountability, right, for the reserves they hold or even more so to completely new form of stable coins, which are algorithmic stable coins rather than uh, issued against a pile of cash. So the, there is uh, quite a few of these uh, projects out there. So Tether, good, good to have it around, but I think it's a, it's a transitionary asset, unlikely to be uh, the main assets many years from now. They're going to be more. Uh, there was kind of better substitution to it. But CBDCs um, negate the use case for stablecoins. I think e largely they may undermine the idea of stablecoins because that's exactly what they provide, right? Kind of, it's a, a, a kind of US dollar equivalent on crypto rails, far more efficient. And uh, so it, it gains this ability to be transactioned and sent across the world in an efficient manner. And yet it's stable. From that perspective, yes, existing stable coins would be perhaps less in demand. Now, can CBDCs undermine Bitcoin? The answer is no. And the reason for that is that however digital uh, central bank digital currency may be, it still has one inherent flaw. And this flaw is that it can be inflated by the central bank at any time, right? Kind of however digital it is. Bitcoin, on the other hand, has this completely different monetary policy. That's why use case of Bitcoin is unlikely to be undermined by CBDCs, but stable coins, yes. Yeah, interesting. Mm -hmm. So uh, what are your thoughts on Binance? Is Binance going to be able to make it through this and change, or is there some uh, inherent risk there? Well, I think what, what uh, regulators are fighting is against the leverage, uh, which is embedded in many highly levered products, uh, which are traded on Binance and, by the way, many other exchanges uh, in the form of uh, perpetual swaps, generally super leveraged uh, instruments. Uh, and many retail investors are engaged in that. And that's where the risk from regulatory point of view is. Uh, here in the UK, for example, uh, FCA, Financial Conduct Authority, uh, is perfectly fine allowing uh, retail investors to buy crypto in kind of physical crypto, but not really derivatives on crypto. Binance, coming back to them, they are actively offering these products. And that's exactly where the clash happened with many regulators around the world. It looks like a coordinated attack because you have a number of governments or local regulators coming after Binance in the space of one week. 
surprisingly. Uh, can uh, Binance go around that? I think, yes, they will need to re uh, restructure their product line, uh, perhaps change onboarding procedures and uh, KYC procedures to basically restrict access to riskier part of their product line. But having made this adoption, they are likely to remain in business. Maybe their uh, development wouldn't be as exponential as it would have been otherwise. Uh, but for the sake of preserving business, they will need to trim it down slightly, right? Uh, to make it uh, kind of access, uh, acceptable for the regulators. So I think the business model will change, but Binance is likely to remain in business uh, for the long time. Well, great. Well, Anatoly, I appreciate you carving some time out today. I know you're extremely busy, especially right now with uh, Bitcoin in the stage that it's in uh, here currently. Um, is there anything else that uh, you'd like to leave us with? I'm going to put all your contact details uh, for the company and everything in the description for the video. But um, anything else you'd like to share with us before we wrap it up? Well, I think uh, what we touched before, it's important in this market uh, to have a structural view on this space. And again, not lose this kind of long-term perspective for the short-term volatility. With that in mind, uh, uh, crypto space offer an incredible uh, set of uh, investment opportunities, really uh, for the whole range of investors. For those who are in capital preservation mode, it can be more market neutral strategies. Those who are looking to capture structural expansion, you go in a more directional strategies. Again, do not overexpose yourself, but do participate in this market. It's a fascinating, yeah, sure. perhaps a last lifetime opportunity in terms of innovation, which happens uh, in this world. We are no doubt at the very beginning, and I was too young to participate in the, um, I am too young to have participated <laughs> in the dot-com boom. And uh, <laughs> I was on a different path back then, just starting my entrepreneurial journey. Uh, so to me, this is very exciting. This is the most exciting revolution uh, from an industrial standpoint in my lifetime. Certainly in my lifetime as well. <laughs> Anatoly, once again, thank you for your time today. I always enjoy talking to you and, and I hope we can do this again sometime. Looking forward. That was a pleasure. Many thanks. Take care. <laughs>